The Water Cooler is a live storytelling event performed monthly at Bats Theatre in Wellington. This month's theme was Smoke and Mirrors. A small reminder that the stories were recorded live, so the language and themes may not be for everyone. Our storyteller, Johnny Potts, returns to the water cooler again after storytelling originally at our first ever Wellington show. Johnny's show, Loose, won Best Stand-Up Comedy and Best Writing at the 2015 New Zealand Fringe Festival Awards. Amongst millions of other awards, Johnny is an exciting storyteller and performer based in Wellington. This is Johnny's story. Okay, cool. So Johnny Potts. Thanks. Oh, this is okay. Hang on a second, I just, want to, I just want to clarify something. You think the reason people do that Leaning Tower of Pisa thing is because there's a photo published in the Dominion? <laughs> I'm guessing. Okay. Where was it, is it, was it like a big one? Oh my God, was it like a blues, am I young? Am I, am I being really young? I mean, was it like a blues song? What were, you, what were you gonna say? I was like, is it like a Blues Brother thing? But that was a Brian analogy. I don't actually mean, was it from was the, it blues the Blues Brothers? Brothers? I just mean, was it something extremely iconic that I've missed? No, no, but I don't think the worldwide phenomenon had its source in a photo in the Dominion. That's, that's all. It could, it could happen. I think it was just something a lot of people did. I say what you can do, though. I that's, was, you're what? wrong. That's exactly how it happened. <laughs> it was a McDonald's toy. <laughs> all right. I say what you can do, though. I went to, the, I went to um, Italy last year. I didn't go to Pisa, but I went to Florence, and you can walk around the Uffizi, right? And what I did is I went out to all the paintings in art history that I saw in art history that I didn't think were very good exemplars of Alberti's theories of um, distance and proportion. Oh, right, yeah. And went like that and took photos. <laughs> so I've got... So I've got... And they let you take photos. So I've got all these pictures of, like, the battle of whatever. And, um, and that... Just like, it's not that good. That's the new, that's the new thing, is improving No, this is painting. how you do it. This is like, Sh- it shows perspective. When you're walking down the street, you've got, you've got to go like this. So they don't know you're doing the fingers. When you walk down the street, you've got to go like that. Yeah. Okay. It's my new thing. When someone like hurls abuse at you in the okay. car, you just go. Because they probably know what you're doing there. <laughs> it's my thing. Okay. All right. All right. Should we pick this off? So no vaping and people have to go like that. If you're going to do the fingers of a story, it's like that. <laughs> or if you don't like the people walking behind you, it's like that. <laughs> All right. What about... Oh, I see why you wouldn't do that. Hi. I was, um, I was putting this together when, um, when news came in about David Bowie and I nearly dropped this and, and did something all about... David Bowie, because of course, uh, Smoke and Mirrors, he would fit perfectly into that. He totally uh, was the dude who uh, proved that art is a lie that tells the truth. So just everyone, just keep on remembering David Bowie. But um, I'd, like to, I'd like to do uh, something a little different now. If you wouldn't mind, would you just close your eyes? I'm going to lead you in a little guided thing. All right. So, you're sitting on a couch. It's not a chair. Yes, you can feel your arm on an armrest, but couches have armrests too, remember? And anyway, your right arm is on on an armrest. Only your right arm, a chair, would have two armrests. You can feel one of your arms on one armrest. The other, the left one, is limp, and a section of forearm and wrist is lying on a scratchy cushion. Ergo, you're sitting on a couch. Behind you and to your right, there is an exit. Further to your right, say between two and three o'clock, 
is another exit. In front of you is a third and final exit, if you don't count the window, which leads to a walkway, which leads to a fire escape, which is, you can see to yourself, indeed a type of exit. Of the remaining three exits, one leads to the hallway, one leads to a little empty room by the girl flatmate's studio. Wait, do you just have one girl flatmate? Yes, okay. And the third exit leads to the phone room with the peacock feathers and the hippie chick poster and of course the sick old phone which doesn't ring so much as wretch and squawk. You want to go to the hallway so you can go to bed. You want to go there soon, but you do not know how to get out of the room. Everybody else is watching TV. Though it's not a TV really, it's an old computer monitor with an aerial in it. You are watching the exits, all of which seem equidistant to the low Formica coffee table. On the coffee table is a big ashtray full of well, ash. There are also scratched and dulled CD cases, dirty coffee cups, and a bong made from a green bottle sitting there smooth and grimy and smoking like a gun. Everyone else is still watching TV. They are barely moving. Nobody is smoking or sipping coffee or spinning a light around their thumb. All of that work has been done, and now they are relaxing. You are trying to appear relaxed as well, but you are, in some low-level but all-consuming way, freaking the freak out. You have been in this flat a week or two, and it is fairly obvious that your new flatmates are much more experienced and frequent pot smokers than you. They are in their element. For you, however, the air vibrates in one heavy yawn, echoing and buzzing. Time is not so much slowed as flattened. Someone must have got coffee at some point, you realize. You ask yourself, which way did they come in? Whichever entrance they used must also double as an exit. This will be the exit to the hallway, which leads to both the kitchen and your bedroom. After 90 seconds of consideration, you conclude it's probably not the window. Your stoner native flatmates can probably identify which, uh, where these, each of these exits lead. You clear your throat to ask them, but stop yourself. You can't ask for directions out of the living room. They will think you're pretending to be really stoned and like way out, when the reality is you are really really stoned and increasingly timid and withdrawn. Your cough is left to ring in the air, causing visible eddies and currents in the smoke-filled room. You will realize later that this probably didn't happen. All the exits are door frames without doors on them. There's a curtain across one. This is the one immediately in front of you. Think, did you pull back a curtain to enter this room? Maybe. One has a raised like step kind of thing you need to negotiate. One is behind you, and who knows what the heck is going on back there. You certainly aren't going to risk moving. What if you did start moving and had to finish your motion somehow? You might slip off the couch. What then? Slink around on the floor saying you're looking for something? No, there must be no sound. This is a covert exercise and must be conducted in silence with no tells. After four minutes of deep thought and reasoning, you are certain that the doorway to your right, not the one behind you, the one you can see, leads to the hallway. This is the door you must use. But wait, how can you be sure your mind isn't playing tricks on you? Or maybe you're doing it on purpose. How can you be sure you aren't trying to come across as really, really stoned to yourself? 
Are you a double agent inside your own head? Look, think about it. Aren't you a little too sure about that doorway being the right one? You are fooling yourself, but you have caught yourself out. The real exit, the one that leads to the hallway, is directly in front of you, the one with the curtain. Now it's time to make your move. This will be a swift and sure departure, executed in one quick but unhurried motion. You will be sober and in control. You wait for your heartbeat to sync up with this kind of psychic metronome that just showed up. When it does, the metronome becomes a clock ticking down to launch. You get up. There is some head rush, but not as much as you were fearing. Go. You stride with languid confidence across the room, expertly chicaning around the coffee table. You sweep the curtain aside with regal grace and bound out of the living room into the hallway. You are in the phone room. Okay, be cool. It's dark in here. Can you pretend to be doing something? You pick up the phone. The dial tone harmonizes with the TV noise. You push some numbers at random and the tones sound like the best kind of electronic music to you. Then the sound appears in a rush of Wagnerian severity. You put the phone down. You ghost out of the phone room and are back in the living room. You were right. The door to your right, which is now to your left, was the correct exit the whole time. You triple-crossed yourself. A hairy flatmate addresses you. You trying to call somebody? Before you have time to think, you reply, Ah. You stare at yourself in the bathroom mirror, brushing your teeth, trying to find your eyes. You put on the second side of David Bowie's low and lie down on your bed. You wake up sometime later to find the needle crackling and skipping in the runoff groove and your room filled with light. Everyone has gone to bed now. Someone must have left a light on and it's coming in through the frosted glass that makes up half of one of your bedroom walls. You get up, turn off the living room lights, go to bed. It's still there. You get up, go downstairs, turn off all the lights there. After one or two more failed attempts, you return to your room, look up, and switch off your own bedroom light. Good night. Our storyteller, Ruth McIntyre, is a hybrid Tongan Palangi mix who grew up in the metropolis of Palmerston North. She tried to change her name to Harley Davidson when she was seven, and a couple of years ago at a party, she spilt mustard up John Key's back. Ruth is currently the communications lead at Women's Refuge New Zealand. This is Ruth's story. All right, everyone give it up for Ruth. Thanks everyone, my name is Ruth. I work for Women's Refuge where I take care of all of our social media um, and do things like wind up Chris Brown's promoters through silly childish memes um, and then make the news for swearing at Chris Brown's promoter. Um, so yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm a bit worried that I probably go over time so I might just get into it. And bear in mind, I've never done any of this thespian-esque kind of shit before. So I'm <laughs> gonna apologize in advance if I go off on tangents. Okay, so appearances are a curious thing. Without even realizing it, we all look at someone and immediately start making assumptions about them. 
we paint a big old stereotype with all the colors of the rainbow. For instance, most people will look at me and assume that I've probably got an extensive criminal record, member of the Green Party, I rock a bit of a butch get-up, so I'm probably a mo, and I probably smoke a shitload of weed. All of this based off nothing but my appearance, and that they've assumed this before they even get to know me. People are often surprised once they get to know me at just how different I am from all of the things they had me coined as. Okay, I'm totally lying. I'm all of those things <laughs> mentioned above, except that I will like cock till I die, and I don't belong to the Green Party. Okay, I've pretty much done a really shitty job at proving a point, but basically you get the drift. It doesn't take long to look someone up and down and think that you've got them all figured out. And you could be bang on with your assumptions, but you could also have no fucking idea. And even if you are right, even if I do look like a weed-smoking, raging feminist, you've probably also sidestepped the possibility that I've got three university degrees and some of the best grades in New Zealand. And as hard as it is to believe, I've never ever said a swear word in front of my mother, not fucking once. <laughs> Nobody ever really knows anything about anyone. It's quite impossible no matter how much you think you do. And just one small revelation can change the way you feel about someone that you've known and loved your entire life. So I come from a really loud, large Polynesian family for all up in everyone else's shit. It's pretty much like that movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, except it's My Big Fat Tongan Wedding, and everyone has browner skin, gnarlier moustaches, and managed to desecrate the English language a lot better. They'll happily tell you when you've gotten fat or you're dating a dickhead in exactly those words. I was raised by a conservative church-going Tongan mother who, despite having lived in New Zealand for many years, is still fresh as fuck. She constantly muddles plural and singular things and refers to everyone using masculine pronouns. She, she, she also wears a hearing aid, but refuses to actually turn it on because it's too loud and I hear things. <laughs> she has a PhD and is a lecturer at university. She actually does. I'm not even fucking you with that. <laughs> She's a legit academic from a New Zealand university. My dad's this crazy, liberal, eccentric, Balangi American who got kicked out of his first uni for inciting a riot. He also speaks fluent Tongan, mainly because mum won't have an excuse for understanding, for not understanding his shit, but also so that my aunties can't bitch about him behind his back. <laughs> They've been married for ages, and he takes everything in his stride and still manages to be a good C, GC. Whenever us kids do dumb shit, he's always like, I think this is something we should take to the grave without telling your mother. <laughs> but my mum hides shit from my dad too as well. So last year we were having this discussion about how PI kids always look heaps older than the other kids at school, like way older. Everybody has full-on moustaches before they even hit 14. So Dad began to explain that it's probably because they're actually biologically older. So in Tonga, your birth date is when your parents choose to register you at the registry office, not the actual date that you are literally born. <laughs> no shit, you could be born in 1996, but your parents don't register you till 1997, so that's your birth year. So you're a whole year older before you're even technically born. And it happens quite a bit. It's why Balangi kids don't like playing rugby anymore, because they're under 16. <laughs> Their under 16 grade has got some 18-year-old Tongan men stomping on the field. So sometimes you might get up, sometimes you might get to the registry office and you're already a couple of kids deep, and then all the siblings end up with the same birthday. That's why I've got a couple of uncles that are born on the same day. 
So we're chatting about how fucked up this is. And then my mum, who was in the kitchen, interrupts the conversation and pokes her head around the door to the kitchen and goes, it's true, you know, that's why I am two years older than my birth dates. So then we all stop and look at Dad, who's looking just as confused, and he says, excuse me, you're what? And then Mum, who casually replies, yeah, I get born in 1947, not a 49. <laughs> and then Dad goes, what? How come you never bothered to tell me this? And all she could say was, because he never come up. <laughs> so Dad went quiet for about half a minute and then started arcing up. What do you mean it never came up? It came up all the time. It comes up every year on May the 19th for the last 35 years. And she was still really blasé about it, mixing her cake. And she was like, I don't see the problems with this. So all this time, my mum has been older than my dad. She could have got her gold card two years earlier. <laughs> Taking her to the movies would have literally been a cheap date. So like I said earlier, just one small fact can change everything you think you know about someone so quickly. So now dad's on this bad buzz that his whole marriage is a sham and whatnot. <laughs> You know, because lying to your spouse is only ever okay on two occasions, when disclosing your weight or how many people you boned. So what else doesn't he know? What else is she hiding? So now there's this joke in the family that whenever you get pissed off about being the last person to find out, we all just say, well, he never come up. <laughs> Ruth, why didn't you tell me the police were at your house because you've been growing weed? Dad, he never come up. <laughs> so when I was 20, I got arrested for telling a police officer he had a small cock. <laughs> it was my birthday and we were drinking along the strip in Christchurch in the outside area when I saw a friend who was just outside the barrier. So I jumped the rope with my drink and then a 5-0 appears and asks me to tip my drink out. Naturally, being a student, I scull back the rest of my drink. He says, yeah, finish that last 10%, eh? It's not like you can't afford another one, just go turn another trick. No word of a lie without any hesitation, I said, yeah, well, you'd know all about that industry because you can't find someone that would ride your little diddle for free. <laughs> Next thing you know, hogtie handcuffs police cells disorderly charge. We've all been there before. Don't look surprised. So when you first appear in court, a police officer reads a summary of facts, which is a synopsis about how you, got, how you fucked up and came to arrive in the court. The police officer sits at the front, faces the judge, and mumbles just enough so that the gallery behind him can't hear any of the details. The day I appeared, there was a huge mongrel mob trial about to start, and they were doing the first call through, so the courtroom was jammed, full of reporters, supporters, and what looked like an entire chapter of the club. I was first up to the dock, then by some hideous fluke, I, Jesus Christ, they had an articulate megaphone mouth officer reading the summary of facts. As mine were read out, the entire courtroom went silent and listened to every single detail. The last sentence was, and then, Your Honour, she told the officer that he had a, quote, little diddle. <laughs> Everybody in the courtroom lost their shit, including the judge, who was trying not to laugh, who then proceeded to ask me if I knew firsthand. And then everyone started up again. I got discharged without conviction because it was my birthday and because I think the judge just thought it was too funny for a Monday. <laughs> the beautiful world that is the New Zealand justice system. So when I was much younger, I had some run-ins with the only thing that feared me more 
then the law, my parents. I went to a local public high school and one week my parents went away. So I decided I needed a break from school and forged a note explaining that my granddad popped his clogs. Parent-teacher interviews rolled round. The teacher extended her deepest sympathy to my father upon losing his father. And when they got home that night, they didn't say shit other than I needed to apply myself. The next day, mum and dad come home and dumped a pile of boarding school prospectuses on the table and told me to choose one. They all claimed pretty similar shit, so I chose the one with all the smiley, happy people and a decent ratio of white to brown faces. Turns out those people didn't even go to the fucking school. <laughs> then mum and dad told all their friends and all our family that I chose to go to boarding school. I chose to. They still say that to this day. After my lag at boarding school, I studied the most un-Polynesian subject at university because it was what the career counsellor told me to do. She basically used this crazy, outdated flowchart from about 1812, and it was about as accurate and strategic as those paper fortune-telling things. So we landed on civil engineering. I didn't even know what a civil engineer did, other than civil was a synonym for polite, so a civil engineer must be a polite person who designs and builds stuff. So that's what I did at uni. Even though I didn't really know what the fuck they did, I knew that there were two universities in New Zealand that offered the program, and one of them was Christchurch. I thought, hey, Christchurch, never been there before. Unfortunately, no one had told me how flat and racist it is. <laughs> Even though the uni prospectuses had pictures of brown people that looked like they were having a good time. And I later found out that those pictures of those brown people weren't even in the engineering program, what is it with me and getting tricked by happy brown people and prospectuses? I did learn some real cool shit, like how to snorkel a bottle of KGB in under 10 seconds, and I also carved up academically and got invited to join the Secret Geek Society. It's called the Golden Key Honor Society, and it's for the top 5% of uni peoples, and to date, it actually has not done shit for me. I thought it might have been like the Illuminati, but nah, not even a secret handshake. <laughs> rental car upgrade or free fries or anything like that. I can't really remember how I arrived at the decision, probably because of another flowchart, but I thought I'd give town planning a hoon, so I did a master's. That wasn't too bad. I never got to plan any towns, though, and I didn't actually meet anyone that did. It turns out town planning doesn't actually mean you get to have a job where you plan towns. It's way more boring than that, like legislation and shit, nothing like playing The Sims. <laughs> When I was at uni, I had a fuckload of part-time jobs to fund my hedonistic lifestyle, and one of these was working for family planning as a sex ed teacher in low decile schools. That was heaps of fun. Teens come up with some pretty hilarious shit, and when you've cap captured their attention with a topic like sex, it's even better. They don't even listen all day, and then you say penis, and everyone is tuned in. The good thing about low decile schools is that despite being thug as fuck, the kids are pretty open about their experiences and eager to fine-tune their skills by asking heaps of questions. One of the boys in the class had said that sex was frustrating for him. I said to him, what do you mean? And he was like, oh, I've had sex a few times, but not fully. I said, what do you, what do you mean by not fully? And he said that he'd got his dick in, but hadn't managed to get his balls inside too. <laughs> I explained to him that you were supposed to leave your balls at the door. And then he said, so why do you put them inside the condom? <laughs> Given that I had a knack for teaching very basic things to very adolescent teenagers, I went on to work for an office of parliament for a bit. 
great for a while and then it was straight up bullshit. <laughs> so I worked in an office where there were heaps of smart people who had wasted their days at uni actually learning and handing assignments in on time instead of getting high and drunk and sleeping with people they actually didn't like. They thought that their grown-up jobs would be a sweet time to get buck wild, to say the least, and not even like a cool buck wild, but like a middle-aged Christmas party behaviour shameful kind of buck wild. <laughs> we caught my married manager pashing another married manager in the window of the Bullcott Bistro and been a, been a hungy pants about town with other men that weren't even her husband. Then, like Voltron, she teamed up with the evil receptionist and managed to orchestrate a massive restructure that conveniently got rid of all the people that could potentially oust her extracurricular activities. Some Game of Thrones shit going up in there. <laughs> and because I didn't buy into their shit, they tried to make my life hell. But that was all right, because I used to fuck with them. I'd do things like draw giant magenta pink cock and balls all over anonymous feedback documents. <laughs> and when they would try and pin it on me, I'd just flat out deny it. Say so shit like, oh no, that's definitely not mine. I don't draw hair on the shaft. <laughs> I'd take bites out of their sandwiches and then put them back in the fridge. Or sometimes I'd just pick out the meat and cheese, reassemble the sandwich, wrap it back up and put it back. I'd also start humming songs every time they'd try and talk to me. They'd pull me in to have conversations and I'd reply to their questions with R. Kelly lyrics. So Ruth, did you have a chance to look over those proposed mining legislation changes? Yes, I did, and I don't see nothing wrong with a little bump and grind. <laughs> or even, Ruth, did you find out what caused nitrogen leaching on that particular parcel of land? Yes, it was the remix to ignition, hot and fresh out the kitchen. <laughs> but after a while, it got boring, so I started looking for a new job. Cured a woman's refuge, and here I am. Oh, shit, I got a couple of kids, too. I almost forgot about them. They, they act like dicks the majority of the time, so the majority of the time I'm actively trying to forget about them. And I suppose they're okay, like I love them and shit, but my God, are they annoying. There's two of them. The little one is real fickle and grumpy and all about the toilet words, and the big one is way too clever for my liking. When we moved to Wellington, the big one was quite small. He was inquisitive and articulate and all those things that people that don't have kids think are great attributes for kids to have. <laughs> but the people with kids know that they're really not. We went swimming at the Freiburg pool during a busy lunch hour, and when we were in the changing rooms getting dressed, he was mucking about waiting for me. So there's quite a few women getting changed, and he's just sitting on the bench watching them quietly, which should have been a big old flashing warning beacon, because when you have kids, silence is suspicious. All of a sudden, at the top of his lungs, he yells out, Look, Mum, that lady has a big hairy beard on her vagina and it goes all the way down her legs. Look! <laughs> Pretty much fight or flight, so I grabbed our shit in him and legged it out of there as fast as I could. He's one of those annoying kids, though, that unless you formally acknowledge his observation, he repeats himself constantly. So we're leaving and he's going, Mum, she had a really, really hairy vagina. Mum, are you listening? There was a beard on her vagina. <laughs> is just like Kuro's beard, but Kuro's beard is grey. That lady's beard on her vagina isn't grey. I'm frantically trying to shut him up, thinking, oh my Jesus fuck, I'm going to need to acknowledge that she has a shit ton of pubes on her front bum, or he's going to keep going. So that's how smoke works, and this is how mirrors work. I've just unloaded the truth, but even then, there's deception everywhere. My mum went her whole married life never bothering to tell dad her real age. I went to several different education institutions and got tricked by the same damn brown smiling faces on the same damn prospectuses every bloody time. The teenage kids are basing their hypotheses of how sex works on some ghetto rationale theory. 
They're in for a sweet shock when they find out that sex is actually way easier and way lazier. <laughs> that cop with the little diddle, maybe his mates just think he's an average 13.19 centimetre guy. But in reality, he's potentially walking around with a huge tiny secret. Those sandwiches that got left in the fridge and no one had known I'd taken all, out all the good bits. Not one person knew. As for that lady at the swimming pool, I bet she just goes about her day-to-day Stepford wife shit and none of her coffee and Valium group friends know that she has a big old puby beard underneath all those layers of Trelise Cooper. <laughs> so at the end of the day, we just don't know anything. We're all just following a career advice flowchart origami destiny thing, guessing our hardest and hoping for the best that at the end of the day, there will actually be some smiling brown faces and free fries at least. Thank you. Our storyteller, Bailey McCormick, is a New Zealand burlesque world champion who is more famously known as Fansephoria Foxglove. Her burlesque alter ego is inspired by the unlikely combination of the top twins, Marilyn Monroe and Lucille Ball. This is Bailey's story. Can I please get you all to put your hands together for Bailey McCormick? I do feel like this microphone's bigger than my face, so I can do side angles. Is that better? I don't know. Um, Telling a story is not something I normally do using words at all. I tell stories visually with feathers and rhinestones and a backing track. On a daily basis, I tell stories through the way I dress my body, like today, for example. Um, And I like to tell a different story every day. But trying to come up with a way to tell this particular story was quite hard for me. Um, I kept thinking, perhaps I could wear one of my extravagant costumes and slowly strip back the layers to reveal my secrets one by one, because smoke and mirrors. But then I clicked. This is a podcast, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah so... That, no. Um, or, or I could come out um, in like really theatrical makeup and like wipe it off as I speak like in the style of dramatic beat poetry with a bongo drummer or something. But again, podcast? Yeah, yeah no. So um, I've got a knack for visual spectacles. That's, that's my thing. But, um, and I do this on stage as a persona, as a burlesque persona, but also just in everyday life. Um, I trick people all the time, apparently. Uh, I thread illusion and fantasy into the tapestry of my life in very subtle ways and very blatant ways. And I think it all started when I was little because I was an extremely gullible child. My mum tricked me into eating broccoli by telling me that they were ice cream trees. (laughs) (laughs) And that worked. And it took an embarrassing amount of time for me to learn that fairies weren't real. Um, And I never figured out how contestants on Stars in Their Eyes went behind that sparkly curtain and came out as Madonna in seconds. (laughs) Obviously, I thought they had, you know, like a whole crew of people waiting backstage with hairspray and costumes and, and they were there, like, ready for the really quick change because that was showbiz. But I also do trick people into thinking that it takes me ages to get ready when, in fact, it's a total piece of cake. Like, I wake up at 10 past 7, and I'm I'm at work at 8 o'clock, and I still kind of look like this. Um, 
But on some occasions, you know, it does take a while, um, but when it does, I relish the ritual of it. Sometimes I do set my hair the night before in pin curls, and I've spent a lot of time learning how to contour from drag queens. Um, and other times, I'm just running really late for work, but I still want to look like Betty Grable, so I just cut some corners. I've, I've just developed really efficient methods of applying lipstick while walking against a Wellington headwind, or like on a bumpy bus, I'm just like, oh, I've got a steady hand. Um, but you know, I like to let my outfits do the talking. I call my personal style character dressing, with a heavy vintage influence. Um, a few memorable outfits have been 60s Parisian air hostess, Lady of Leisure playing tennis at the country club, Betty Draper on Valium, <laughs> and 80s jazzercise instructor. So I like to try on different characters for a while and not have to live with them for the rest of my life. I enjoy dressing theatrically, I think, because it gives me a provocation. It's like a mood setter for the day ahead. But as I've learned, if you want to dress outside what is currently considered the cool uniform of jeans, a striped t-shirt and like those Nike sneakers with the little platform thing, be prepared for an onslaught of confronting reactions. And dealing with the comments and the glares I receive while parading down Cuba Street is still something I'm not entirely used to. Some days I'm just less resilient than others. Mostly I welcome the, the knowing smiles, the polite conversation with strangers about what era I'm portraying that day and <laughs> questions about how to achieve the perfect beehive or where I get my lipstick. Jeffree Star, Cosmic Corner, You'll, you won't regret it. Um, <laughs> other days I just completely shut down and I stare straight ahead as middle-aged men trying and engage me in conversation. Recently, for example, a, a man made a beeline for me across the road, ranting, Hi, I'm Marcus. You look like something from the 1930s. And I yelled, I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> I think he got the hint from my brisk walk away and my snappy response, and he did disappear. He was probably harmless, but his ambush threw me. And besides, I was a full-on 50s square that day, and my, his reading of my outfit was completely wrong. So <laughs> I wasn't willing to give him the time of day. But my snippy reaction was probably primed by um, a similar encounter earlier that day. So same outfit, a different man felt compelled to chant, Come on, Barbie, let's go party. Ah, uh, 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 yeah. Come on, Barbie, let's go party. Ooh, oh for an entire block to himself and he was inspired by the 97 aqua hit I think <laughs> the only because he had tried to yell to me Barbie hey Barbie Barbie look at me Barbie Barbie hey Barbie and well I didn't give him an ounce of acknowledgement so he resorted to at least he's got commitment right you know <laughs> uh, <laughs> but another time a middle-aged woman standing next to me at the street lights she just loved my fur coat so much that she launched in to caress me to feel if it was real or not. And she was like, oh, oh my God, is that real? And little did she know, she was actually like full on sexually harassing me, <laughs> groping my boobs, hidden under the fur facade, and you know, without my permission. But I laughed it off at the time. I was just like, oh, she's a bit batty. But I thought about it further and realized how completely grossed out I would have been had it been a strange man's hands. 
And what these encounters have revealed is that if my body attracts attention through the way I happen to adorn it that day, it's seen as an open invitation, as if I'm dressed solely for everyone else's amusement. But that's wrong, because I'm dressed entirely for my own amusement. I, <laughs> I am very aware, though, how powerful my ensembles can be. And if I'm feeling dangerous, I will wear knee-high socks or seam stockings with a curve-hugging wiggle dress. And sometimes I will waltz down Cuba Street with such a strong sense of self that I make it my very own runway. And I smirk at the natters and the passers-by and love it when old ladies give me elevator eyes like, <gasps> like that. It's just, <laughs> oh, it's empowering. But I think... <laughs> If only they knew how easy it is to possess this kind of power. It's so uplifting. Some people say to me, oh, but I can never pull that off. And I revel in sharing my secret that in fact, anyone, anyone can do this. You just feel the fear and you do it anyway. You turn that old adage about letting, not letting the clothes wear you, you turn that on its head. You do it. You just let the clothes wear you and you just... See what person it turns you into for the day, and, and that's your mood setter. But there is one time of year when I make a concerted effort to dress down, right down. It's that annual event every Wellingtonian over the age of 24 dreads. Do you know what it is? Sevens weekend. Yes. <laughs> yes. During this time, I become a plain Jane, and I avoid the main streets. I tone it right down to minimise the onslaught of objectification. I go full on track pants, baggy clothes, low ponytail, no makeup. I, I take the back streets instead of Cuba Street. And I have my face sent to like squinty, squinty glance mode. <laughs> but squinty bitch face aside, I'm very used to being viewed as prickly on first encounter. As soon as I dyed my hair Marilyn blonde, I went from being perceived as Wholesome Bailey to Ice Queen Bailey. As soon as I added burlesque to my skill set, I went as being approachable to intimidating. A friend once said, Ever since Bailey went bottle blonde, it's like she's lost 20 IQ points. <laughs> my most extreme act of sorcery is, of course, playing my burlesque persona, Fanciphoria Foxglove. And this persona is hardly an alter ego. I'm not shy in real life at all. I'm chatty and loud, as Alice has explained. <laughs> I use exaggerated hand gestures, and I'm told my, my voice projects like way too far for an open plan office. <laughs> but <laughs> but Fanciphoria is certainly an amplified version of me. And as that heightened version of myself, I get to try on other characters as well. So I'm Bailey, playing Fanciphoria playing Lucille Ball, or Camp Leader from the Top Twins, or Fran Drescher from The Nanny, or this Saturday, you can see me as Brian from The Backstreet Boys. <laughs> and lip sync battles. But it's because it's fun to play, right? It's, I'm still living out all these childhood games I used to create with my sister. Our favourite game for a while was Shortland Street, which went a little bit like this. You be Caroline, and I'll be, I'll be Tiffany. Okay. Kiara Shortland Street, <laughs> Tiffany Bacon. And you'd just be real Kiwi and like try and draw it out. And we would do lots of like Dr. Rolfada stuck in Guatemala jokes. And I do. 
like he's still stuck in Guatemala. And like I have actually turned that whole thing into a burlesque act. And in fact, I created a whole new genre out of it and I call it skitlesque. It's fun. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so I do get to be silly on stage and that's fun because my days playing Caliban and the Tempest are well over and I'm okay with that. Because I'm good at fun, I'm booked for being the clown in a gown and sometimes I do struggle with imposter syndrome because I'm not the one with 15 years of ballet training or the one who went to circus school. I can't do high kicks or the splits because I'm 28 and I've already had a hip replacement. True story. And I tried doing classic, beautiful, lovely burlesque once, but um, I couldn't turn off the satire mode in my face. Um, a friend of mine came up to me after the show and said, my 80s soap opera facials really made her laugh. Um, but that's fine, because I was trying to be sultry, but it made me learn that I should just stick to comedy. But I think my sneakiest trick is to play a character who is famous for being goofy and slapstick. So... Um, if I mess up, no one even knows. And this character is the one true screwball, comedy queen, Lucille Ball. And every time I perform this act, something goes wrong. My corset gets stuck, my pasties fall off, I get a cream pie up my nose and have to live with the smell of rancid cream for days. Slapstick comedy trick number 101, thanks to Eli over here. Um, never use actual real cream in a cream pie in the face gag. Because of that reason, that's why you use shaving cream. That and it um, melts under lights. So um, one time I lost a pasty. A pasty, everyone, is like one of those like nipple coverings that burlesque performers use that we glue on and they're full of rhinestones. Um, so I lost one of those um, and I didn't know it. So I was on stage and I like turned around to face the audience and... Um, I just lost one and I was bearing a singular breast and facing a, like, a really conservative audience of Aucklanders who a lot of them hadn't seen burlesque before. Um, but then a nipple-sized dollop of shaving cream <laughs> falls from my face <laughs> to my nipple and like, ding, restoring my modesty in perfect time. <laughs> in perfect time with the music. And the audience was like, oh, oh my God. And they clapped. After the show, I didn't even know it had happened. After the show, everyone was like, oh, how the hell did you do that? And I was like, magic. <laughs> and, like, winked and ran off stage. And while I do love, like, my wigs and my pin curls and my fishnet stockings, my corsets, my overdrawn Lucille Ball lips, my glitter, props, bunny ears, rhinestones, feather headdresses and heels, I love all that. But those are all just part of the sorcery I use to create the illusion of glamour and spectacle because burlesque is not Stanislavski and nor should it be. My most valuable trick of all, though, I think is just good old-fashioned self-confidence. Sure, my costumes and my props are the tools I use along the way to, to get where I need to be, to end up at a place of ease, but I do not hide behind them. Dolly Parton, the original creator of a persona who was in fact a self-aware parody of femininity, sums it up for me. She says, find out who you are and just do it on purpose. And my identity and self-confidence comes largely from the way I choose to present myself 
and the tools I use to present myself were quite a powerful trick. But I'm in on the trick, and they just help me get to where I need to go. But once I'm there, I can just cast them aside. And when I'm standing there on stage with only a G-string, pasties, and a shaving cream pie to the face, have I revealed my final card. And when people ask me after the show, or down Cuba Street, how the hell did you do that? I say, it's magic, but you can do it too. Our storyteller, Ken Double, was born in Hawke's Bay and now lives in Wellington. Unfortunately, everyone else in advertising seems to have done the reverse. After working for big agencies for many years, he now runs an independent consultancy with his creative partner, John Fisher. He lives with his first wife in Melrose, where they communicate with their children on WhatsApp. He is excited to have his whole life behind him. This is Ken's story. All right, can I get you all to please put your hands together for Ken Double? Thank you, very, thank you very much. I do work in advertising. I am a copywriter. Um, I work with the aforementioned, previously confused John Fisher in a company called Doublefish, which is a tiny little creative consultancy that works about a stone's throw over that way. Um, because we are a small company, we tend to have, you know, the shorter chains of command and, you know, the, the, you don't have the sort of levels of naval contemplation and self-delusion and... Um, kind of borderline psychopathic behaviour that you get when corporates collide. So it's been a long time since those days. But I did used to work for Saatchi and Saatchi. <laughs> it can't have been that bad because I did it for 11 years. In fact, I'm just going to say right now, complete disclaimer, Saatchi's was amazing. Saatchi's Wellington was absolutely incredible. They were on a roll at the time. Um, Everybody who worked there was just brilliant, you know. I mean, I worked with so many amazingly clever people. And aside from the annual conference where you were sort of required to demonstrate an enthusiasm for paid employment that no one should have, <laughs> um, it was really cool. And you were pretty much allowed to be yourself, for better or worse. So if you work in a job like that, especially in, well, actually, probably almost less so in the creative department, because in the creative department you're allowed to behave how the hell you like. I don't know why. They, you're just infantilised. There's people that do everything for you and they really don't, you know. If you want to be a dick about it, go ahead, as long as you do the work. But most of the creative department actually are, are, are pretty cool. But um, there is a thing, you do a dance with the devil all the time. You know, you do some really cool, great and noble things and some stuff not so much. So every job you kind of end up slight, having a slight recalibration of virtues so that uh, you can sustain your existence as a moral being. You know, I always imagine kind of lower order SS guards kind of having the same sort of feeling, you know, <laughs> high-fiving each other when they, you know, manage to load the wagons really efficiently that day or something. But um, it was like, you know, you, you just... You, you made lemons out of the lemonade, you know. That you anyway, um, uh, lemonade out of lemons, I should say. Um, anyway, um, uh, a while back, uh, 1995, I think it was, we were, um, uh, we were approached by Camalco, the company currently known as Rio Tinto, um, 
to uh, help them because they wished to raise a lot of money. Now, Camalco, now Rio Tinto, are the people who own the TY Point aluminium smelter. Uh, and what they wanted to do was um, add an extra pot line. So they were going to have a debenture issue, uh, which involved having a big ad campaign to get people to invest, to raise the money for the pot line, so they're going to make more money and all that. Um, New Zealanders have, and probably still do, have a relationship with the TY Point aluminium smelter. that They, they see it as this giant smokestack industry that gets power for a, a fraction of the price that they pay for it, and uh, just does these bizarre and unnatural things inside, um, you know, a heavily guarded compound, and nobody particularly has a, likes it. But you know, I don't know. They just see it as a, an evil necessity that was put there by Rob Muldoon or something. But anyway, what they so, Camalco, being um, an essentially psychopathic corporate, even though all the people inside the corporate were very perfectly nice people, the CEO he was great. Um, but being a psychopathic corporate, you know, they try and deny that, and so everything they did up to then was basically about kakapos. They just, they chucked sort of some pin money at the world's laziest parrot and used that as um, a means of kind of scrubbing their brand clean. And, uh, and, and so, you know, they, that's what they'd done up till now. And um, we were confronted with this problem, right, what do we do about... Malcolm, how do we make this aluminium smelter into um, you know, the jewel in the crown? And anyway, so everyone's having this discussion about what former National Party cabinet minister or ex-All Black to, is going to front this loser kind of thing. But I'd read a science magazine beforehand, and I'd read an article about aluminium, and what bloody marvellous stuff it really is. You know, it's everything from hard drives to hatchbacks. The car industry were using it to save weight and emissions, and, you know, those were the days when... Global warming was just a boring fact, not a <laughs> liberal conspiracy, so, you know, that was good. Um, and so I, uh, I said, well, why don't, we do, why don't we do something about aluminium? And I had this idea. We could tell these great stories about aluminium, and we'd actually just get down there and film the damn thing, and we'd use the workers to front. And, um, but we kind of write the thing in a whole slightly ironic sort of way in the days when irony was still in its formative stages, and it wasn't completely played out. And then, um, you know, we would have experts come in and the whole thing would be kind of entertaining and yet informative sketch of what the whole thing was about. And advertising people, are, um, particularly creatives, feel a strange kind of thrill when they're allowed to tell the truth. It's a sort of, you know, you spend, your, you spend your entire career in a state of kind of ethical relativity, and most of the time what you say is broadly true, because if it isn't, then the, your competitors are going to hoard you before the beak, and, you know, you'll get complaints to the Advertising Standards Authority. But they are, it's quite liberating to, to advertising people to just say things like they were for true. Um, it's sort of, I imagine it's how retired politicians feel. You know, <laughs> shit, I can actually say the stuff I think, you know. So anyway, this, this really appealed, you know, and the client thought the truth, oh, aluminium too, yeah, why not? You know, no carcapos, but oh, all right, go. So <laughs> anyway, we ended up on um, sort of 10-day, two-week shoot down in Invercargill at the Bluff Aluminium Smelter. And um, it's, yeah, it's great. Uh, I 
I should point out that the TY Point aluminium smelter is Southland's best tourist attraction. <laughs> I don't know if they still do tours, but they used to, and you should go on it. <laughs> Honestly, fuck the rest of that shit. Go on a tour of the TY Point aluminium smelter. It's awesome. Um, it's way more spectacular than Splash Planet or Rainbow's End or the Aquarium of New Zealand, which is um, what Napier calls its fish zoo. Um, I'm from Napier. The aquarium's lovely. Please go. Uh, but anyway, um, there's a lot of cool shit there. The, they got this thing called the Carbon Bake Furnace, and it's like a set from Dark City. It's just this vast, all the, everything I've got's vast, this vast hangar of black soot where they make the anodes in these huge furnaces, the, 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 car, the carbon anodes, which are about this big, that go into the pots, and the several of them go into each pot. Um, the people who work in the carbon baked furnace have to smother themselves in barrier cream, put on gloves, the overalls, the hair-covered gas mask. Basically, you can't work in there with a centimetre of skin exposed. It's just... They have uh, these aluminous stores, which are like giant Swiss chalets, just like, you know, 12 storeys Swiss chalets, and you go in... And you go in on this gangplank, and what you see is like something from Tony Montana's wildest fantasies. You just see this white powder, just <laughs> piles and piles of white powder as far as the eye can see, and it's quiet as anything because it all just sucks up the sound. And if you fell off one of those gangplanks, you just go with a little, and you you land ever so softly in that white powder, and you would never be heard from again. <laughs> They have a shed, like a, for them a modest size shed, into which 18% of New Zealand's generating capacity goes. There's all these pylons sort of marching in from Manapuri and they all just go into this shed and you think, well, that's 18% of New Zealand's power is in there. They have a, uh, they've got a mile and a half, it's probably more now, um, they've got a mile and a half of pot lines and pots are these huge kind of reverse batteries where um, you run power through at fantastic amperages but a kind of marginal voltage and they uh, where dissolved alumina um, comes out of the, come, by electrolysis comes out and sinks down to the bottom as aluminium um, and the, that aluminium is then drawn off into crucibles and um, put into furnaces and eventually moulded into ingots. What those pot lines are is a giant electromagnetic field. They um, you're, you're not allowed to go in there with a pacemaker. Uh, your digital watch will stop. The, um, the workers reckon there are places you can go around and stand a steel ruler up on end and it'll just stay there. The, you're not allowed to take any aluminium ladders on site in that smelter at all. So every ladder in the TY Point aluminium smelter is wooden because some, one day somebody might take that ladder into the pot line and um, you might connect accidentally connect a pot with what electricians call earth and you wouldn't want that to happen. Uh, and the other, the other thing I learnt was, um, I didn't, has anyone ever heard of water, aluminium water reactions? I didn't know there was such a thing as aluminium water reactions. I mean, God, there's aluminium boats. It sort of, it's apparently you don't want to be there. Um, they showed us uh, 
picture, they showed us a video from Australia, some smelter in the 70s, where someone had accidentally stuck, there was a can in a bunch of recycling that was being put into a crucible for recycling. Aluminium is very good for recycling, by the way. Um, it still had a little bit of water in it. You imagine the aftermath is this sort of, like an aircraft hangar, but longer, and there's like 100 metres of it replaced by a smoking black hole. The, what happens in an aluminium water reaction is extraordinary, if that, and it's just a physical reaction of the, aluminium, of the water being dropped into extremely hot molten aluminium. Anyway, it's fascinating. It's a brilliant place. If they, ever, if they still do those tours and you're down there, go. So we were down there shooting, and it was all good fun. Um, we had New Zealand's first Honda NSX to play with. That was cool. Uh, we had all these sort of interesting people from around the world who were sort of experts on various things with great things to shoot everywhere. The film crew got to indulge the obsession with workwear that all film crews have to a level that you can't quite believe. You know, like, <laughs> by the end of the shoot, they crossed over. You know, they were just every day the crew would kind of show up with another little piece of safety equipment on them to the... It was bizarre. Um, anyway, so, and that was all cool. It was, it was fun. On day three or four or five, I can't even remember, whatever it was, we um, went into town. We, was, we were staying in Invercargill in the Waldorf Astoria of Invercargill, which is the Kelvin Hotel, because, um, you know, advertising and film people don't slum it. Um, and we were out one night at um, having a drink at this cafe called the Zookeeper's Cafe, which is one of those very sort of a bit, bit over-colourful regional cafes, you know, the, the like local bohemians who kind of wish maybe they were living somewhere else. Or hip, sort of <laughs> find all the local artists who do interesting things with metal and, you know, put it all up around the cafe. Try and pretend they're not in Timaru or Stratford or something. So, but Zookeeper's was cool, you know, they did good coffee and nice food. Um, and anyway, we were there, and, I, and I'm, I'm the piker without the stories, so I sort of go home at 11 and um, go to sleep, sleep the sleep of the just for all that great work that we're doing for Kamalco shareholders, you know, that makes you feel great. Uh, woke up in the morning, came down to breakfast, they've got a big, big dining room in the Kelvin, came down to, the bre came down to breakfast, the place is packed with cops. It's like wall-to-wall -wall cops from one side to the other. And these aren't like friendly neighbourhood bobby cops. This is the armed defenders squad. There's all these guys with the blue jerseys, the epaulettes that you put your beret in, all that kind of thing. I don't know why they have berets, but the berets, they're one of those sort of hats that um, bridges the gap between visual artists of a certain age and professionally trained killers. <laughs> when outside, there's about half a dozen Nissan patrols, navy blue Nissan patrols parked up, and they've all got these huge roof racks with huge PVC bags on them. And these bags are long, you know, we're talking kind of 10 or 12 foot long, shoved into these roof racks at the top that just say kind of equipment that you don't need to know about. And <laughs> I thought, what the hell? And of course, what was, what was happening, and it wasn't um, a police convention, certainly not one that required the, any armed response units. What it was was a situation that needed an armed response. 
Apparently, about 10 minutes after I'd split from zookeepers, someone, a male Caucasian, had broken into H&J's outdoor world on the other side of Tay Street, got himself a shotgun and a bunch of shells and started taking pot shots at the cars and retail outlets of Invercargill. So he would, there was a, you know, I'd missed the whole thing by about 10 minutes, but he was sort of peppering shot at all the shops on the other side. He remained there all night and was still there when I got up in the morning and hence every professionally trained killer in Southland and further afield had descended on Invercargill to deal with this situation. And it was kind of, oh my God. So we, um, we had work to do out in the dismelter. So, you know, we, we were led by a sort of nervous production assistant down a preordained route out the back and along the street into vans and we went out there for the rest of the day to shoot. It's kind of feeling, excuse the pun, but, you know, thinking, oh, what's going on here? Then we did it, you know, we kept shooting commercials and all that, expecting at any moment that the situation would be dealt with, and it wasn't. You know, so the end of the day, the guy is still in there, and so we've got to go back into town to be led by the same nervous production assistant into a hotel where just around the corner some guy with anger issues and a gun is doing his thing. So, um, you know, and I kind of think, what are those kind of toughs I was breakfasting with, you know, what are they doing, you know? And so we went, uh, Juliet, the producer, and I went down to, to, to dinner and thought, hey, let's have a last meal, you know? Ordered steak for a last meal, uh, because everybody has steak for their last meal, and um, ate that gingerly. And the waitress, the, the waitress was brilliant. She's one of those sort of hard to go south of girls. She's, she was fantastic. Um, came out to take the dessert order, you know, what would you like for dessert? Um, and um, she, she came out with a sort of slightly furtive air and said, he's out. <laughs> and we were sort of like, ordered apple crumble and sat there and waited for a very nervous 10 minutes. And um, then eventually uh, she came back with the dessert and the news, which was kind of really not the focus at that point, she came out and said, they've got him. <laughs> we just thought, what? They've arrested him? Is it what? They said, he won't be bothering anyone any longer. <laughs> and we sort of quietly ate the apple crumble, not sure, sure whether to feel relieved or horrified. What happened was, Eric Bruce Gillatley was a 34-year-old guy who was diagnosed about 10 years previous with paranoid schizophrenia and um, he was well known to the Invercargill mental health system and like a lot of people in his situation he was more of a danger to himself than anybody else and um, he'd busted out of H&J's and the cops dealt to him. Uh, it was a sort of thought at the time you know here we making this commercial that was, you know, costed hundreds of thousands of dollars, it was a whole campaign, cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, we had millions more spent on media on it, and um, in the end, for, it was never even used for its intended purpose. Uh, the price of, commodity price of aluminium went through the roof, and um, uh, Kamalka made so much money, they uh, managed to raise enough to um, fund the expansion themselves. 
but they ran the campaign anyway because they really liked it and made them feel good about themselves in spite of the fact that it didn't have kakapos in it. Um, so we were doing that and meanwhile, poor Eric Bruce Gillatley was uh, suffering from the results of a desperately underfunded mental health system and uh, committed a sort of badly coordinated suicide. Um, the next time we were down, and really we, we shot the commercial, did the business and left. And um, It's funny because I, I, I didn't go back to Invercargill for about three years, but I was there on another job as a, we were a second unit with a shooting a commercial for um, another client. And um, the DOP was a, a well-known Australian DOP who was, used to, he, was, he was crash hot and did all the Shadok car commercials in the 80s. Um, he was a bit of a, you know, he was a genius. And then he had, um, you know, he was slightly larger than life. And uh, at some point he had a breakdown and um, blackened his name throughout the industry. And the Sydney Film Company, who are um, wonderful people in the goodness of their hearts, decided that he might be ready to get back on the horse again and they gave him a job in second unit and, uh, on this thing and um, he was a little bit miffed that he had to shoot everything on video so he decided to show what you really do with video and he made the whole thing look like Top Gun which was completely anti-concept. He ended up with a huge argument with the director in Wellington, um, stormed out, threw the phone down and had his second breakdown. And I believe that's about where his IMDb entry stops, around about there. You know, if you look him up on IMDb, he sort of, he seemed, you know, his professional career seems to cease about then, so I can't sometimes wonder what happened to him. But I don't know whether it's Invercargill, you know. It's, <laughs> there is some, Invercargill is kind of ugly, but the people are neat, the people are really nice, they've got oysters. It just seems that everything there goes a bit surreal. And I remember watching that Saki's Brothers film, Two Little Boys, and thinking, this is a documentary, isn't it? You know, it, there's just something about the place. And uh, anyway, I've always associated it with uh, madness ever since. And so I've been frightened to live there. Not that I would. Um, there's no advertising in Invercargill. Lucky them. Um, Anyway, uh, as I say, there's a million stories in advertising and I know almost none of them, but um, that one always amused me. The, um, uh, if anybody uh, needs any work doing, you know, we're available. Um, <laughs> our rates are $250 an hour. If we ever get that, we'll be sleep. Uh, but thank you for your attention and um, good evening. <laughs>